Morning. You guys are responsive today. Good singing. Isn't it uh, awesome, our uh, talent of those that lead us in worship? I just uh, really been taking it in today. Very cool. <laughs> Get it perfect, man. He puts it perfectly and then I move it right away. Of course. Hey, uh, we're going to do a little bit of business before I jump into the sermon. And the first order of business, I am um, super excited to be the one to announce uh, that we have hired a new director of worship arts, and his name is John Jackson. Woohoo! Yeah, yeah. Well, they're happy. The row four is happy. Um, so John served um, as the worship uh, leader for our student ministries for uh, quite a few years. I don't know how many exactly. Um, he was awesome to have on the team, and he began to. Uh, lead worship in here quite a bit, and God made it very clear that he was uh, called to uh, lead adults in worship. He is a worshiper, uh, and he left about two years ago to be a worship leader in a church in Chicago, and he's done great there. Um, but when um, I knew that we had an opening, um, I began to pursue John because this is John's home, and we're going to bring him back, and he's going to be our worship leader. So, that's the first part of news. Um, if you look in your bulletin, there are uh, many, many things in your bulletin. We can't talk about all of them, but I've been tasked with talking about a few. We have a new member class that's coming up May 17th. starts at 3 o'clock, and we go through uh, dinner together so that we need to know if you're coming uh, so that we can have enough dinners for everybody. It's a one-day thing. And uh, here's the deal at Grace. You can come here for the rest of your life, and you can say Grace is my home church and not be a member, and that's fine. But there are some... Um, uh, elements of being a member that are, are, I guess you could say, a benefit. And one is that you can vote. So we just had a voting uh, for a new senior pastor here a few weeks ago. That was only for members. That's just a way for us to um, know who's voting, know who you are, and there's a little bit of a process to be a member. You have to come to this class. You have to go through an elder interview. Um, and the class really is set up in such a way that when you walk in the room, we ask you, what do you need to know in order to make an informed decision about membership? And then we write all those things on a board, and then we make sure we cover those things. So some of it's theology, some of it's just the way we do church, some of it's our governance structure, um, all the things that you ought to know before you make a decision. And then once you're a member, you vote on a senior pastor, we vote on elders, we vote on the budget, which is coming up in a, a month or so, and we vote on any constitutional changes. So... Um, there is some responsibility given to you as a member, uh, but you can't be a member unless you come to the class. And you can come to the class and decide, eh, I don't need to be a member. That's okay, too. But I would recommend that you come. So if you're interested in that, um, you can just stop at the information counter and say, hey, I want to be at the class, and we'll uh, add your name, and then we'll know to make sure that we have a meal for you as well. Uh, in your bulletin is this little card. It says spring cleanup. Would you take that out for me, please? And here's the deal. Um, in the spring every year, or for the last few years, we have gathered together as a church-wide sort of thing, and we've converged on Baldock Park, and we've done this massive uh, spring cleanup there, getting all those fields ready for the 40-plus baseball teams we'll have playing out there uh, come this summer. And we also converge another day on the building itself here on the outside, and we plant all the plants and get all the beds ready and put down new mulch. And here's, we could hire somebody. Um, and we could do it, but we found that this is a great way for us to connect with one another and to just have a good time. So here's what I'm asking. I'm asking that you do one or the other, and if you feel so inclined, do both. But it would be great if everyone at Grace chose one of those two Saturdays to show up in the morning, 
to give her their time, and you'll connect with some other people. It'll just be great for you. So fill this out. Yeah. Yeah. What, what John said. Uh, works here. Works around the building. You might have some motivation there. But anyway, fill it out, and we'd love to have you be a part of uh, one of those. And before I get into the service, I also want us to just stop and pray for Baltimore. So would you just pray with me, Lord? Um, it is a sad thing to turn on the TV these days and to watch um, all the events in Baltimore. There's been some good moments, uh, moments where um, people stood beside the police and it just warmed my heart to see that. And I have friends that, that lead church in Baltimore and I know that they are trying so hard to step into the chaos and to be the church of Jesus Christ in the midst of pain. And Lord, um, my prayer is that your kingdom would come that your kingdom would come in Baltimore and that people would um, know that it doesn't have to be this way and that racial tension doesn't have to be. And Lord, I pray for the family that was devastated by this young man's death. I pray for the police officers whose lives will never be the same. I pray for the families of those police officers whose lives will never be the same. I pray for the, the business owners whose, whose businesses were looted and whose lives really will never be the same. Lord, there is just so much trauma uh, going on in Baltimore. And so we ask that your kingdom would come and your will be, be done in Baltimore <laughs> as it is in heaven. And Lord, we pray that we would continue to be a church that enters into this chaos of racial reconciliation and racial healing, that we would continue to be honest with each other as we even navigate another difficult chapter in American history. Lord, help us to be the church of Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So grab your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to read verses 14 through 21. And this particular passage has become sort of our DNA at Grace. Over the last year and a half, we have been praying this particular passage over the church. We've been talking about over and over and over. You've heard the words immeasurably more from the platform. You saw a banner that was hung up for a good part of last year that said immeasurably more. You all signed or most of you signed that banner and said you would pray for us at 9.30 every morning for immeasurably more. This is the passage that that came out of. And so what we did when we first started talking about immeasurably more is we put this prayer campaign into, into motion, if you will. And we said we want everyone at Grace to set their alarms on their phone for 9.30 a.m. every day. And when their alarm goes off, would they just stop and pray for Grace, pray for the leadership at Grace, pray for protection at Grace, pray that God would do immeasurably more at Grace. And I love the stories that I've heard. I've heard so many different stories. I've heard people talk about the opportunity they've had to, to share at work because their alarm went off and somebody's like, what's that? Well, I set my alarm. I pray for my church at 930. That's really great. Where do you go to church? So it's an opportunity. But one of my favorite stories is the grocery store in the aisle and two people's alarm go off at the same time and they just look at each other and say, Grace? grace. And they have this great conversation. They didn't even know each other, but they had this common bond of praying at 930. So set your alarm. Take out your phone right now if you haven't done it. It's so easy nowadays with smartphones. It just goes off every morning at 930 and just that rhythm of stopping and praying. We have over a thousand people now who have committed to pray for grace and it's beginning to uh, bear fruit and it will continue to bear fruit, I'm convinced, uh, as we continue to pray. So Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, Paul writes these words. He says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. 
I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have the power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Verse 20 says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So there is a lot in this passage. And the truth of the matter is, this is one of those passages that you've probably heard a few times. It's very popular. And the reason it's popular is because the language of this passage is so incredibly rich. It's just a beautiful prayer to read. There's beautiful language here, and, it's, and, and it all comes together. But if you're not careful, that's all it is. It's just a, a, a group of, of words strung together like a great secular poem or something where you read it and you're like, man, that is so beautiful. And Paul really wrote a beautiful prayer there. But the question is, is it truth? Is it just a well-written prayer or is it actually truth? Or another way to ask the question is, is this prayer your actual experience with God? Is this what you've actually experienced in your life? Are our lives and the promises of God in this prayer lining up? Are they the same thing? And if they're not the same thing, then we have to ask ourselves, is it still true? So you see, if the scripture doesn't play out in your life the way you read it, does that make it not true? No. It means that there's something that keeps us from experiencing God in the way that God wants us to experience him. So the better question isn't, is it true or is it not true? The better question is, what keeps me from having this sort of a experience with God? Do I really have an immeasurably more sort of experience in my walk with Jesus? And if you don't, what's the block? What's the dam? What's the glass ceiling? What's the thing that keeps you from having that sort of experience? And that's what we're going to sort of unpack a little bit today. But I want to kind of set the stage just a little bit. As I studied this scripture this week, more so than any other time, and I think this is the third time in my tenure at Grace that I've taught this passage, um, but this time more than ever before, I had this visual of, of Paul sitting in, at his desk and, and, and writing this, but in a total state of worship. Like I've never seen it as much as I've seen it this time, that this prayer really is just this, this moment of of incredible worship for Paul. He writes this, this amazing thing, but I think he was overcome with worship. He was in a state of worship. So you know what I mean by a state of worship? Have you ever been caught up in something and, and actually been in a state of worship where you're, you're like overwhelmed by something that you were looking at or you were experiencing? You were like in awe. There was a sense of, of wonder. I've had that happen to me quite a few times, but sometimes it happens for me in nature. When I see something that's just extraordinary, and I, and I look at God's creation, and I, I do believe God reveals himself in nature. And I have these awe-inspiring, worshipful moments where I'm, I'm almost speechless as I look at a scenery that God has put together and think, wow, look at the wonder of God. That's, a, that's being overcome. Now, here's the, the other part of it. Sometimes it happens at a concert. And it may not even be a Christian concert, but the music is so incredible that you're caught up in the, it could be just this amazing orchestra or something like that where you're just like in awe of what's going on. You, you kind of are overcome and there's a piece of wood. But the other place it happens for us sometimes is at sporting events. 
And I think that's kind of weird, but it's, it's truth. There is this thing sometimes that happens at sports that, that kind of cracks me up. So guys especially tune into this because I have seen grown men at a sporting event jump up and down, hugging each other in a little circle, like, <laughs> right? And literally, I've seen guys cry at sporting events because their team won. I've seen guys cry at sporting events because their team lost. But that, that being overcome to where we throw off all restraints and we're willing to just kind of make fools of ourselves at a sporting event, but then we walk into church and we sit on our hands. It's an amazing thing to me how different we allow ourselves to be. But just think about a sporting event. How common is it to be at a sporting event? And every person in the place is going like this, right? There's so much going on. They're just there hooting and hollering and their arms are in the air, but yet we talk at church, you know, raise your arms. And people are like, ah, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. I don't know. But I think the reason I bring all that up is I think Paul was worshiping. I think he was overcome. I think he was in awe. I think when he wrote this, he was sitting up straight and he was writing and he was smiling. And he's like, I can't wait for this church to read this because this is good stuff. God is like pouring something out of me. He was in a complete state of worship. So verses 14 and 15, he says, For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name for this reason. We see that phrase a lot actually in Ephesians and what you should do whenever you see the word for this reason is ask the question, well, what's the reason? So we look back and we ask, well, why is Paul writing this? And what we heard last week, what I told you last week is the first three chapters of, of Ephesians is just this, this entourage, this, this list of all of the things that God has done over and over, all the things that God has brought us to himself, that God is the one who reveals himself to us, that God is the one who gives us the spirit of wisdom, that God is the one doing God, 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 God does, God does, God is. It's just this long list of all of the things that God has done. If you remember last week, I even read the list just one after another just to kind of get you into it. And so it's because of all of those things, Paul says, I kneel before the Father. Because of all that God has done, I drop to my knees and I pray to the Father of heaven. And then he says these amazing words. He says, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. We also talked last week that it's God's heart for unity. That our mission statement is that we are I didn't put it on the screen this time. It was a trick, wasn't it? You're all waiting for it to flash up there. We are a mosaic striving to live like Jesus. And that Part of our mission of being a mosaic is the very heart of God, that God desires that we be one. And here we see it again, where every family in heaven and earth derives its name. But you got to stop and you got to think about that. Every family derives its name. You know that means that God is the father of Muslims? Yeah, it means that God is the father of Hindus. It means everyone are children of God. Now, what we know to be true is some people are separated from God, and we know that people are not reconciled to God, but they are still God's children. Every family in heaven and earth derives its name. And so if we understood that, if we really understood it, it would create a different level of compassion in our spirits. It would give us a different level of passion towards other people. It would actually give us a place of empathy towards both people and God because what it means is God has children that are far from him. And if you are a parent, you know how difficult that would be to have kids that are estranged, have kids that are far away, but nonetheless still as kids. How different would we respond to people if we realized they were all God's children? If we realized as 
brothers and sisters, that we are calling our own family back into relationship with God. We would have this, this feeling of, of being about mercy and grace and reconciliation. The evangelical church in America would be very different if this one truth were part of our DNA. Instead of being harsh and judgmental towards other people, the church would be known as a place of reconciliation, a place that is constantly reaching out to people who are different, to people who think different, and drawing them in. Why would we want to do that? Because they are God's children as well. It would change who we are as Christians if we just had this one truth and held on to it. Paul recognizes that we are all God's family, and he prays that we would be strong in the Spirit. So look at verse 16. Verse 16, he says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he will strengthen you with power through his spirit. In other words, I pray that God will make you strong through the, the spirit of God that's working inside of you, right? So there's this picture of God doing the work, strong in the spirit, in your inner being. So this being strong is, is not something we do. You don't will yourself to be stronger and thus you're stronger. As a matter of fact, this is the paradox of walking with Jesus. This is the, there's this paradox that, that exists and just means that it doesn't really make sense, but, but we do not make ourselves strong. God does it. And this paradox is kind of unfolded in this very encouraging story that Paul tells in 2 Corinthians. So if you want to turn to 2 Corinthians 12, 2 Corinthians 12, turn there. We're going to read verses 7 through 10. If you don't, it'll come up on the screen. But keep your place in Ephesians because we're going to go back to Ephesians as well. But Paul writes these encouraging words to you and I. He says, To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations. Which, let's just stop right there. Imagine writing that. Imagine writing, to keep me from being proud because God's told me so much. Right? I mean, if I said that, it would be like, I'm already proud, right? Like, it's a crazy statement. What Paul's really saying is, look, I've had this amazing experience with God. I've had an amazing experience with Jesus. Jesus actually showed up and was my personal teacher, and I had all this revelation of God. But God wanted to make sure to keep me humble, to keep me from becoming conceited. Keep reading. He says, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan, to torment me. Verse 8, he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord, take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest in me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness and insult and hardship and persecution and difficulties. For here's the paradox. For when I am weak, I am strong. Just so you know, that does not make sense. In any other economy except for God's. When I am weak, I am strong strong. That's the paradox of walking with Jesus. That's the paradox that unleashes the Spirit of God in our lives. Because when we are strong, when we are self-sufficient, when we think we can do it on our own, then we circumvent, we get in the way of what God is trying to do. When we recognize that we can't do it, then God shows up and does it for us. Look, Paul was the man. I mean, he was the man. He, he walked with Jesus well. He modeled what it means to walk with Jesus. Jesus was doing amazing things in him and through him. And he has this, this tormenting thing going on in his life. And he says these words. He said, Jesus said to me, my power is made perfect in your weakness. 
The question is, do we recognize that we can't do this on our own? I want to just point out a few things about this passage that's worth noting. We have no idea what Paul's problem was. And if you've heard anybody ever preach and said it was, he had a lisp or, I mean, I've heard so many different things. Look, we do not know and we don't know for a reason. Here's what we do know. It was a big deal. He didn't have a hangnail, right? He didn't have trouble finding the tie that matches his suit. It wasn't a small deal. I mean, he uses some pretty loaded language. It's a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me. That's pretty graphic, right? So it's whatever it is, it's a big deal. So it could have been a sin problem. It could have been that, that Paul had this tendency toward a particular sin and that he was continually tempted to go in a certain direction. So guess what? When you're tempted, it's not sin. Did you know that? Because sometimes we're pretty hard on ourselves. Jesus never sinned, yet he was tempted. But here's the deal. What you do with temptation is whether or not it becomes sin. So if you're tempted and you allow yourself to go to fantasy, then you sin. If you're tempted and you allow yourself to do the thing you're tempted, so your actions can become sin and your thought life can become sin, but when you feel a pull towards something that you know is wrong, you are not sinning until you decide what to do with it, right? So there's this, this figure. So that could have been part of Paul's journey, maybe, or it could have been some kind of physical affliction. He could have been, he could have had migraines. He could have had a slip disc. And imagine sleeping on, you know, uh, stone floors and being in prison and, and all the things to think about. If he had some kind of back injury, how nagging that could be. He could have had digestive issues. We don't know. And you know why we don't know? Is because now we can apply this verse to every single one of us. Because if we knew what it was in our human nature, we would say, yeah, I know Paul had migraines, but I've got this problem. Right? And so we don't know. And so this verse becomes applicable to every single one of us. We can say to ourselves, look, we have struggles, but God's grace is sufficient for me. We have struggles, but, but in my struggle, I can turn it over to God. I can say, God, I am not capable of doing this on my own. And in my weakness, I become strong. Here's the problem. Yeah, that's worth clapping about. Here's one of the things that gets us uh, messed up. We think that if we go through a hardship, we think that if we have any kind of affliction, we think that if we have even a physical ailment, something that's really tormenting us, we tend to, in our modern American Christianity, say, well, it's just because I'm not spiritual enough. If I were just a better Christian, if I just knew Jesus more, then I wouldn't have this problem. But that doesn't really line up with what Paul's saying, does it? And so we actually look at other people and say, if I was just more like that person, then, then this wouldn't be going on. And we, so we circumvent what's got, and then we put it back on who? On us. We make this about us. Like, if I only do more, if I only read my Bible more, if I only prayed more, if I only had more faith, then I wouldn't have any kind of affliction. And Paul had an awful lot of faith, and he knew Jesus pretty darn good, yet he still had an affliction, and he heard Jesus say, I'm not going to take it away because my power is made full in your weakness. And so the, one of the things I want you to do is if you go through a difficult season, don't become self-abasing. Don't, don't convince yourself that this is because you're not spiritual enough. But ask the Lord, what is it that you have for me in the midst of this affliction? I've talked to so many people at Grace over the last 10 years, 15 years, who have gone through devastating things, cancer, deaths of children, deaths of spouses. And, and there's a common theme in, in many, many of them, which is this was the hardest thing I've ever gone through, and I've never experienced God more than in the midst 
of that suffering. Going through cancer was so hard, but I've never experienced God more than when I was in the midst of that because they turned it over to God and said, I can't do this on my own, God, but I need you to show up. And you know what he does? He shows up and he carries us through the affliction so that we can learn that in our weakness, he can be strong. How do we live into this? On our knees, with our arms in the air, praying to God and letting go of being self-sufficient. I can muster my way through this. I have what it takes. I can be strong. And Paul said, no, no, you can't. You really can't. You're dependent on God to show up, so you do it on your knees and and you get rid of self-sufficiency. But can I tell you, the other thing we have to let go of is control. And we are control freaks. We want to control everything. And God's saying, look, if you want to follow me, you are going to lose control. If you are really going to be a slave to Christ, then you are a slave to Christ. And he is in control. So we have to let go of control. And the other thing we have to let go of is image management. Because no one wants to look weak. No one wants to be weak and look weak in the eyes of others. So we put on a good front. We fake it in front of other people instead of just saying, this is the hardest thing I've ever gone through. Will you pray for me? Will you pray that God will show up in the midst of this affliction? Paul is telling us that the power of God is unleashed in our lives when we surrender control and understand that we are weak. The message throughout Ephesians ought to be encouraging to you because God does and God is. God does the work. Over and over we see God doing this amazing thing. And it ought to serve as this incredible encouragement to us that you don't have to do it because God is willing to do it for you. So Paul prays that we would be strong in the spirit. And he also prays, verse 17 through 19, that we would be rooted in love. He says, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, will have the power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. The imagery of having a tree, having deep roots and being able to bear fruit no matter what the season is, is pretty common in Scripture. We see it in in Psalm 1. We see it in Isaiah 17. This picture of of having a solid foundation, roots that grow deep, so even in seasons of drought, you can still bear fruit. So what's the application there? That when you're going through affliction, when you're going through difficult seasons, whether it's sickness or whatever, something that's tormenting you, that you can still bear fruit. Well, what is fruit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. You have to have deep roots. You have to know who God is in order to go through that sort of a season of your life and still display those fruits because most of us in the midst of our affliction are anything but love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, or self-control. Affliction tends to bring out a different side of who we are. And he's saying, I want you to have these deep, deep roots. I want you to have this solid foundation. And the solid foundation is that we know how much our Heavenly Father loves us. What drives your roots deep is an understanding of the love of God. That God loves you no matter what. So my daughter, when she was little, Casey, we used to go to the pool. And uh, we would do this almost every time, especially when she was small. She would stand on the side of the pool, and I would get into the water, and, and I would hold my arms out, and I would tell her to jump. And she would usually cross her arms like this, 
And she would shake her head no, and she would literally shake. No way, I'm not going to jump, no way, no way. And I'd be like, it's okay, Casey, come on, jump. And I'd have my arms out. I'd say, jump, it's okay, you can do it. Finally, she'd get up the nerve, and she'd jump. And if you're a parent, you probably did this with your own kids, and you kind of let them go under the water, but you bring them up, and she would have just joy beyond joy, and she would usually say, let's do it again. And I would put her back on the side of the pool, but I would step back a little bit further. I'd say, okay, jump. She'd say, oh, no. Come closer. I'd be like, no, jump. I'll get you. I got you. You can trust me, honey. You can trust me. And so we'd do this over and over. And after a while, she could jump without me. But, but, but after a while, she, she began to understand, that, look, my dad's not going to let me drown. My dad's going to catch me. And you know what else she discovered is that there was this thrill that came from, from taking that leap of faith into my arms. And it's a picture of our, our walk with God. God's saying, are you willing to leap? Do you really trust me enough to take a leap of faith? Are you really so grounded and rooted in my love that you're willing to do something that is scary? Are you willing to do something that doesn't seem like it's going to be easy? A leap of faith, there's this unknown. What if is in the midst of the leap of faith? One of the places God tests us, if you will, in all this is in our giving, our financial giving. So if you go back to the Old Testament, uh, God establishes for his people this pretty rigorous uh, amount of giving that they're supposed to give. So we often talk about 10%. You know, God said that they're supposed to tithe. But the truth of the matter is, if you go back to the scriptures, and all the time they were told to set aside something and bring it through all the different festivals, it really was closer to 30%. And that was just the starting point because there's a whole lot of other places where it said give this, give that, whatever. So when we talk about, oh, you should give 10%, we're kind of letting ourselves off easy with that number because God actually asked from the Old Testament perspective anyway, much, much more than that. But why did God do it? Is it because he was poor? Is it because he was desperate for their money? Of course not. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He didn't need their money at all. So something else must have been going around. And I think what God was up to is, I know what God was up to, is he was helping them to jump. He was saying to them, trust me in this. Trust me in this. Are you willing to give generously because you're rooted in God's love? God says, look, give generously and let me show up in the midst of that and let me show you that I've got you. Let me show you this. Okay, so it's a leap of faith for us to give generously. Sometimes what God asks us to give is, is beyond what makes sense. And God says, no, I want you to do it because I want you to learn to trust me. You will never do that if you're not rooted and grounded and have a foundation of knowing the love of God, that, that God has you, that God is going to show up in this. He says, test me in this and see if I don't show up in ways that blow your mind. The other place that I think we see in the Old Testament and we see in our own lives uh, this play out is in the area of rest. So God establishes this thing called a Sabbath for his people. And there was even more to the Sabbath. There was a Sabbath year where they were supposed to not plant any crops. Now, if you live in an agricultural community, not planting crops does not make a lot of sense. Matter of fact, it makes no sense at all. And you know what God was saying? Well, do you trust me or don't you? Do you really trust me to jump off the edge of the pool and do this, or, or don't you? Are you willing to take a risk? And you know what? The people weren't willing to take a risk, so they didn't celebrate that. But, but here's the deal. I don't do this well either. So I've been thinking a lot about Sabbath and my uh, lack of keeping a Sabbath. I don't know if you know, but I work on most Sundays. So this isn't a Sabbath for me, and I love doing this, but this is work, and I love the work that God does me to do, but it's definitely not a Sabbath. 
And so I've been asking the Lord, like, how do I do this? How do I establish a Sabbath? And I went off to seminary and there was all kinds of conversation at seminary about burnout and people need to put Sabbath in their life, especially pastors. And so I've decided that I'm going to take a Sabbath every Friday. So on Fridays, uh, no phone, no email. And when I say this, I get a little shaky in my voice. This is really hard for me. I know it sounds silly, but it's hard for me. I, I think I might be a little bit addicted to my telephone. Right? I mean, no social media. And some of, you, some of you are already squirming just me talking about it. This is hard for me. And no work. And that's the hardest part because I think in my mind, I think that I keep the world spinning by all the work that I do. I'm just being honest with you. It is hard for me to say, look, the Friday was a beast, man. It was so hard for me not to call in. It was so, there was things that God, there's things that I remembered that like, oh, I should call. No, I'm not going to call. Look, this is going to take time for me. But you know what? God's got it. You know what? God's telling me, would you just rest? Would you just remember who I am? Would you just know that I'm building the church and you're not? Would you just step out in faith and take the day and not pick up your email and rest with your wife and just spend time with me and know that I got it? And you know what? I need to remember that the God's love. I need to be rooted and established in love in order to take a Sabbath. And, and I guess I'm telling you this because you need to do the same thing. You need to find days where you take Sabbath. God wants to show us that he loves us. He wants us to take this leap of faith. He wants us to be in places where it's, it's uncomfortable because when we take that leap, he shows up and he shows us over and over that he loves us. Paul prays that we would know how long, how wide, how deep, how high is the love of Christ? And he says that we would know this and that it would empower us to take risk and experience God more and more and more. Look at the second part of verse 19. I love this. He says, when all this happens, you will be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. So think about it this way. If you have a container and on the top of the container, there's a line all the way around in the words F-U-L-L -L by the line, right? And that's to tell you that when you get to this line, the beaker, the container is full. So Paul's saying, I want to be filled to the measure of fullness. Whatever fullness is, that's the measurement that I want of God. And can I tell you, I want to be filled to the measure of the fullness of God every single day. I want to be filled to the measure. Do you want to be filled to the measure of the fullness of God? Paul says that we're going to be strong in the Spirit. The Spirit of God is going to be in our lives, that we have the Holy Spirit. And he prays that we would be strong in the Spirit, that we would be rooted in love, that being strong in the Spirit and knowing how much our God would love us, that when these two things come together, that we will be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. When we are weak, when we recognize that we cannot do this on our own, when we are not self-sufficient but God-sufficient, God shows up. God calls us to take risks. And here's the deal. I'm not sure if we, have, if we have to have the faith before we take a leap or if when we take a leap, we learn to have more faith. It's sort of like chicken and the egg conversation. I don't know which one comes first. I don't think it's always the same. I think sometimes God's saying, take a leap, and you're saying, I don't know, I have enough faith. And he's saying, well, if you take a leap, I will build your faith. Other times, it comes the other way around. Here's the other way this works. I don't know if we worship 
and then we experience God more and more in the love of God because we take a risk and we give ourselves to worship? Or do we experience God and we're moved so much that we worship? And the answer is yes. It's both of those. Sometimes God says, I know you don't feel like worshiping. Put your arms in the air and praise God and see if I don't show up anyway. So I don't know which one comes first, but what I do know is that that God's calling us to stand on the edge of the pool and take a leap. We each have our own thing that God is calling us to that's scary, that's risky. It's God saying, look, are, do you trust me? Do you know that I love you beyond your wildest imagination? Are you willing to give up control and give control to me? And just to make sure that the, the hearers, the readers don't miss it, Paul writes these words in verses 20 and 21 that is kind of our marching statement here at Grace. And I love this. And this is his reinforcement. So Paul's written all this and he says, uh, like, like, just so you know, just so you know, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than you ask or even imagine, according to the power that's at work with, to him who is able to do immeasurably more, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we even ask or imagine. And I hear those words and I think, that is crazy because I have a vivid imagination. I imagine all kinds of things. He say, no, 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 you have no idea what God wants to do in you according to the power that's at work within you. To him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. What does that mean? It means God's desire to do a deep work in each one of you. God desires to do this measurably more work in each one of you. And as we come together as a group of people where God is doing immeasurably more in each one of us, we become the body of Christ. We become the church of Jesus Christ. So we saw it last week that he builds the foundation of the church on us. And why does he do it? So that God becomes famous. Because this is how God is going to make himself known to the rest of his family. By the way we live out of the immeasurably more and come together is a church. This is so for the glory of God. Anytime you read for the glory of God, it means to make God known, to make God famous. That's what the immeasurably more is. One of the things that I'm so pleased about is that we get a chance this morning to uh, commission a good friend and a good follower of Jesus in Lori McLaughlin. So Lori's going to come up on the stage. So welcome, Lori. And we're just going to interview her for a minute, and then we're going to pray over her. But the reason I'm excited about this is this is an immeasurably more story. I couldn't have thought of a better illustration, if you will, of the very thing I've talked about. Lori is standing on the edge of the pool right now, and God's saying, you going to jump or not? And there's probably a part of her that's like, I don't know, but she's jumping. And I'm so pleased that you get a chance to hear a little bit of her story. So with that. Tell us a little bit about this great adventure that God has placed in front of you. All right. Well, Tell us about your pool. Oh, dear. Um, well, at the start of the year around January, I was given the opportunity to um, be the assistant to our ministry partners, Rob and May. And kind of what my job entails is doing whatever they tell me they need me to do. Um, and That's what administrative assistant means. Do whatever I tell you to do. I said, okay. Um, and they actually told me, we need you to come and be with us in Asia this summer. So I leave on Tuesday. I leave on Tuesday. That's pretty cool. 
It is cool. So I had a chance to uh, be in a small group with Lori, a small group where we ended up writing our stories and sharing our stories. So I know uh, Lori's story really well. She's, she's read it for me and uh, actually a couple times. Uh, and it's pretty moving. But um, why don't you share some of the highlights, if you will, um, of, of why this is immeasurably more. And I think you know what I'm alluding to here. Kind of, sort of. Um, kind of, sort of. <laughs> well, the biggest thing is about um, 10 years ago, uh, so 2004, um, I was actually diagnosed with stage 3 brain cancer. Um, and, yeah, it was pretty crazy. Um, I found out that a year ago, uh, or a year before that, I was in a pretty bad car accident, and I wasn't, you know, getting any better. Um, and they actually found that I had a brain tumor by accident. Um, well... Well, sort of by accident. Sort of, we well, thinking by, God was in by it. By design, yes. But, I, I, yeah, but it yeah, turns yeah. out the car accident created some of the medical tests, which uncovered the brain tumor. Yeah. One thing led to another. Right. Hey, you got a brain tumor. So talk about, right. talk about an affliction, God using it. It's a pretty amazing part of the story. So yeah. you find out you have a brain tumor. Yeah, and then... Um, and what do they tell you? You know, surgery, chemo, radiation, the whole nine. And it left me with um, all of that, a few deficits, like short-term memory loss, fatigue you know, kind of impaired mobility just with the area that the tumor was in. And, and the diagnosis yeah. was pretty uh, oh, yeah. brutal? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for reminding me. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Oh, it's my know, job. It's an interview. Did I, did I mention short-term memory loss? Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, you know. Um, yeah, the type of cancer that I had um, doesn't really have that great of a kind of recovery rate. And, you know, that was... 10 years ago, so uh, beat the odds, definitely. Yeah. So. Lori's mom told me in the lobby um, that they really said probably a year and a half. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's pretty, so. pretty brutal. So you went to college. This some, a lot of this happened while you were at college, and you were yep. studying missions yep. at college. You had a heart's desire to be a missionary. Somewhere along the way, did you give up that dream? Mm-hmm. Now it's coming back. Just kind of walk through. It's got to be pretty surreal 10 years later to be. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I definitely thought that, okay, yeah, college was kind of pointless um, because when I was talking with the oncologist and it's a cancer doctor, uh, I would ask, you know, well, hey, can I, can I still pursue this? This is, you know, my, my desire is to go and, and be overseas. And every time I would ask, they would say, no, no, you're not, that's, you're not, ready to do that. It's not something that we think you should do. And then this past year, on this past December actually, um, I asked him again and I was like, well, you know, maybe he would have changed his mind. I doubt it, but maybe. Um, and he said, yeah, I think you're good. Which was out of nowhere. I did not expect that at all, not but awesome. I'm all, all good. That's great. So this is always unfair when I give him a question that I haven't told him I was going to give him. So don't panic. Um, what do you think God was teaching you over the last eight years to prepare you for it this year? I mean, had you gone eight years ago, you'd be a different person. What are some of the, yeah. the lessons of life that you carry into this new calling and this new exciting adventure of going to Asia? That's a loaded question. Yeah, um, I know. Sorry. Oh, dear. Um, well, definitely a lot of different things. I think a, one of the big lessons would be trust, uh-huh. like you're saying, you know, with with Casey. Um, trust, patience. Found out during that time that I was not very patient. Um, and so having that 
a long length of time to discover sure. how to how to be patient and yeah. yeah i think i think you know jesus differently had you not gone through this yes and you're going to tell people about jesus so yes. you might be able to introduce him in yeah. a way that some people haven't been able to because you've experienced him in some of the hardest places things that some, I, I don't even know that i have categories for the journey that god has taken you through it's pretty yeah, it's been pretty an adventure amazing. it's been an adventure <laughs> i love your sure. smile so what we're going to do is we're going to ask the elders go team uh, to come down, and we are going to um, gather around Lori, and we're going to pray. Uh, would you give Ed the mic as he comes by? And uh, Ed can pray over uh, Lori. But this is a commissioning, and here's what I would ask of you. Would you pray for Lori with us, and would you continue to pray for her, pray for her parents? Um, it's not always easy to send your kids overseas, um, but God is in this, and uh, we just want to pray for protection Pray for God to move. Pray that God would continue. To me, this is immeasurably more. Look, her parents didn't know they would have her, let alone have her healthy. You know, we didn't even talk about she had some paralysis and God healed the paralysis. She's, she's going overseas. This is an amazing story of immeasurably more. So let's pray for you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being who you are and seeing what we cannot see mm -hmm. and seeing um, Lori and putting that affliction there or allowing it to happen knowing that you had a, a plan all along yes Lord having her um, her parents have to and herself have to just trust you in all of this and, while, and you, were, you were saying, just tr trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me. And they didn't look, look where you've brought her. You brought her to become one of the, uh, a messenger of yours that is now probably so much more equipped to say, Jesus saves mm -hmm. and God can heal. Mm -hmm. And he loves you. Thank you for where you brought her. Thank you for where you're going to bring her. And we as a church feel so privileged to be able to commission her and to send her in your name uh, into uh, a land that, that where you further her adventure, but are able to are going to be able to use her. In our weakness, you are strong. Thank you so much for that. So we send her with our blessing and with your power. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Yeah. So we're going to sing. Um, and we're going to sing a song that I think is a beautiful song to sing over Lori. But it's a beautiful song to sing over each one of us. And there is, in this song, lyrics about knowing God's love. And my question to you is, where is he calling you to jump? Where is that place of faith that he's calling you to step into? And are you willing to trust that God loves you so much that he can do it? So let's sing. Let's sing.